podcast. What is good? Thank you so much for being here. What you're about to hear is my conversation with Davey Hadsell. When my parents moved to Palo Alto um, during my sophomore year of college, I started taking dance classes at this place called Euphoria Studios where Davey teaches. Um, I would take her class as often as I could when I would come back for breaks, either during the winter break or during the summer break before I would go back to New York. And recently I moved back in with my parents. So I'm living in Palo Alto now. And I actually started working at Euphoria Studios as a concierge. And on Saturdays when Davey teaches, I would be working. And so I had the opportunity to kind of watch from afar and uh, take a few of her classes as I started to get back into dancing. And eventually, I just kind of had the idea, like, I really want to have this person on the podcast. I really want to just learn a little bit more about her and ask her some specific questions. And, and that's what we had the opportunity to do. The reason that I wanted to have this conversation is that Davy really just has an infectious energy. She's really, really nice. She's very, very extroverted. She has a unique presence in the classroom where everyone really just kind of, you know, when she starts speaking, everyone stops speaking, everyone pays attention to her. Like you can feel that that presence and that energy in the room. And she also just has a lot of really interesting thoughts that she'll share kind of in bits and segments during class that I've always been curious about and that I wanted to dive deeper into. And so for a simple overview, we're going to start talking about, you know, Davy as a child. We're going to talk about her relationship with her parents. We're going to talk about one of the most formative experiences of, of her youth. Um, we're going to talk about trigger responses. We're going to talk about breath work. We're going to talk about how she likes to, to make people feel seen when, when they come to her class. We're going to talk about developing self-worth. And then we're going to end the conversation. And uh, Davey's going to talk about the drop, which is a space that she she hopes to open up one day in the future. So this was just a really, a really great conversation. I'm glad that we were able to do this. And I think this is uh this is worth listening to the entire way through. I think Davey has a great voice. Uh, I told her that she should do more podcasts, and I, I still believe that that is true. I think she she has a lot of really good good value and a lot of really good nuggets to share. Um, so I'm going to stop talking. Let's let's jump right in. We're going to start with um, Davy as a child. When I was a child, I um, very optimistic. I think is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I always wanted to make my family laugh or like if anything, if anything ever felt like dark or gloomy in a conversation, I was always like trying to make it into a joke or like trying to change the subject or like divert to something that was going to be like fun and light. Um, so that was kind of me in my family, like my role in my family. Um, as far as like school and, and interacting with other people, when I was much younger, like I can remember like first, second, third, fourth, like elementary school age, um, I I almost I almost like can't even imagine that I was this child, like based on the way that I am now, but I just I like wanted to be good. If you work with children, there, I think that it makes sense or you know what I'm saying where there are some children who like want to be good. When you say good, do you mean good at things or like good people like towards others? Um, both. I mean, I'm, I'm really competitive actually by, by nature, um, mostly like with myself. <laughs> and so wanted to be good like um, if, if there were a board – in second grade, if there if there was a board where you got a star sticker for anything, like I wanted to have all the star stickers. I was like, okay, great, I'm gonna get all the stars. <laughs> um, and it's just like funny looking back on that because I think now um, people that people that know me now might think that I was like more mischievous or like um, maybe like less well-behaved or something but as a kid I was like super super well-behaved and that's I think that's what I mean when I say good like I wanted to I wanted to be good I wanted my teachers to like me I wanted other other people in my class to like me um and 
Tell me, like, what was your introduction to like athletics? Like, what kind of sports were you playing? What kind of things were you doing? Were you dancing? Yeah, so I did not play sports. Um, I liked, so my sister played soccer, and I really liked, I liked being there and like watching her play. And I liked the team vibe of that and like everybody doing something as a group. Um, but I, I was a dancer like since forever. So I did like ballet, tap, jazz as a kid. Um, and so that was always more of a solo thing. I never did like the dance team. Uh, sort of deal. I was always more solo as a dancer, but I got that team or I got that ensemble vibe by doing theater. I was like super involved in all of the community theaters where I grew up in Augusta, Georgia. Um, and you'd be surprised. There's uh, there's actually quite a bit of community theater in my hometown. And so I had a lot of opportunities and I just was like in every show that came through, um, whether it was uh, like the main stage theater and there were children's roles or um, there was a children's theater. And so uh, I don't know, as I'm, as I'm here in Palo Alto working with kids who are in theater, I'm realizing that um, it's actually pretty uncommon for there to be these productions um, that integrate both children and adults. And so um, I feel like that was a really cool opportunity, actually, and maybe sort of unique to um, my experience as a kid in theater is that I was able to be part of these productions that included both children and adults. And I think that just being in that context where I was exposed to people and it wasn't just people who were my age or like people in my class in a school setting that strikes me like reflecting that strikes me as very valuable. It was never why, why valuable. Yeah. Um, because it, it cultivated this sense for me, um, that there wasn't a separation between me and someone who was much older or much younger than me. Like that was not, um, that was not relevant to me at all. And I think that really translates, um, I think that really translates to what I do now because um, I have clients in my classes that are of like all ages and lots of different demographics. And I never, that's, it's just like never a separation there. I don't ever feel like separated. I mean, I don't think of age as being, as being a thing. And then I just never feel separated from someone because they are much younger or much older than I am. I think that when you feel, when you say separated, yeah. are you talking about like, mm -hmm. how does that manifest in, in like, everyday life like what does it mean to be like separated from people who are older or younger what would it mean to be separated yeah like give me like an example like are you talking about like in conversations like the yeah. way that you can relate to someone that kind of stuff yeah i think um i think i mean uh like feeling a need to change what i might say or change gotcha. what i do because someone is different and right like being the same person to a 22 year old or a 12 year old yeah. or a 32 year old to an extent. Yeah. Yeah. To an extent. I mean, like, uh, especially, I mean, working with, with children, there is, um, some, I think strategic things that, that we can do, um, as far as like, what specifically am I sharing and how can I, um, land a certain point with a child um, effectively. And so there's going to be a little strategy around that. But yeah, for the most part, just just being my full self around anyone and not just uh, someone who feels like a peer. And that feels like, like a valuable takeaway from that childhood experience of being in theater. And then thinking about that, I, th I think that that also comes from my relationship with my parents, which like kind of takes us back to your question about like, how was I as a child? I'm very close with my parents. And, um, and I think that that translates to, again, feeling like I don't need to have some kind of censorship over what I'm saying or what I'm doing because of, because of the audience or like the age of the audience. Um, because I share, I share pretty much everything with, with my mom and my dad, um, or I would share everything with them for the most part. Um, right. There are always some things. Yeah. There are a couple of key items. Yeah. That I wouldn't share, but, um, for the most part, yeah, I feel like totally open. And I always felt that they, 
they treated me that way too. It was never just like, it was never just like, no, um, we're not going to do that. Or you can't do that because I said, so it was, there was always like space for conversation. There was always like, Oh, what do you think about that? And, um, and like, how does that make you feel? And, and whatever. And I felt like my opinion was like really heard and really valued by my parents. Um, which, right. They treated you like an adult, like almost the whole time. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe not like an adult, but just there was an equality there. Where gotcha. It wasn't just gotcha. like, okay, well, I'm going to boss you around because I'm mom. Um, <laughs> although I remember my mom had this really cute, like teddy bear t-shirt that said something like that. It was like, because I'm the mom, that's why. But that's like, like, <laughs> not, that was just like a joke. That wasn't like the way they parented me. And I think that that like overall my parents style of parenting from what I understand now as an adult, like hearing other people reflect on their childhood and adolescence, I realized that my parents parenting style was quite unique. Like they, um, they didn't give me really specific rules and guidelines. And I think it's because they had this understanding or this familiarity with the fact that like I'm a rebellious person, um, which it's it's not consistent. Like when I look back as a like a first grader, like elementary school, I can remember like wanting to be good, wanting to follow the rules, get the gold stars, like whatever. But then there's there is a, a shift that happened, or there was a shift that happened where I was like not gonna do um, what I was told to do. Like there's definitely a rebellious streak, or like some kind of shift that happened where my parents was it a moment in time um n- maybe uh maybe a moment in time i don't mean to cut you off i just want to like is it like over the course of like three months you're just like i am gonna be different now like what was kind of going on at the time um it wasn't it wasn't conscious in that way um it wasn't conscious in that way but i did this is like something we have to touch on if we're talking about my childhood because it's like extremely formative, but also sometimes kind of hard to talk about. I did struggle with an eating disorder as a kid, like as a very young kid. Um, So from when I was like really like nine, nine, 10, like through my teenage years, I struggled with anorexia. And that to me is, is the moment. And people say experts say that it is a disease of rebellion and that rings really true for me like at the time at the time it wasn't that way like I I wasn't like oh yeah this is me trying to to rebel or like this is me trying to have control over something um at the time I wasn't even able to say like oh there's a problem um I was just like I don't want to eat and that was it that was like my response but Um, but it is definitely a a rebellious sort of disease and a rebellious sort of response. So I do think that that shift is associated with my eating disorder. Um, and so the way that my parents approached that or the way my parents received that, um, I think was like, wow, we can sense that if we tell her, basically like if there is a sign on a door that says like, do not open, how much more do you want to open the door? You know, you're like, oh, what's in that? And right. I think they just saw that that would be, um, that that would be really relevant for me. So I didn't have like, I didn't have like a curfew. I didn't have, um, a bedtime. I was allowed to have boys over. My parents were like, were like, you know what we would rather. And this is, I think kind of sums up their their approach or their mentality they were like we would rather know what you're doing and not like it than not know and so did that give you the confidence to like actually talk about like your real life and like the actual things that were happening yeah yeah it did and i think i mean i think at the very core it does come from a place of like concern for safety um because i think they knew that i just was going to be like all over the place with like boys and like that whole thing as a teenager and they were like you know what we would rather you like make out with some kid in your room than be like 
in a car somewhere unsafe in the middle of the night in a park, like da, 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 da. They were like, you know what? We would just rather like maybe not think it's the best thing ever, but know where the fuck you are in the middle of the night than have you like jumping out the window. (laughs) And so, um, and so I think it it came, you know, from that root, from that root of, of wanting me to be safe. Um, but yes, that is, that's, that's the thing. That's the philosophy that they had. And I realize now as an adult, how much that like unconditional support where it's like, you know what, we might not like what you choose to do, but we still want to know and we're still going to love you and be there no matter what. And I didn't realize how, um, I didn't realize how like profound that has profoundly that has impacted me until more recently um, because I, I meet people and um, have relationships with people who didn't necessarily have that same kind of support from their parents. And I, and I see it, it manifest. And then I see myself and reflect and, and I'm like, wow, I'm able to do that thing that seems scary or that se- thing that seems risky. Um, I think because I have this like foundation from my childhood of my parents being like, yeah, do it. No matter what, we will still be there. Like no matter what. Self-esteem. Yeah. And, and I just think that that support is like so much more valuable than I could have ever known as a child. But now I see it manifest and I see myself be able to take risks and like really truly embrace uh, my own authenticity. And I do think it comes in part from that support of my parents and just knowing like I could never fuck up so bad that they wouldn't still be there for me. Um, And that's, yeah, that's definitely a a piece of my childhood that translates to adulthood. I think. I'm I'm curious, you know, I just, uh, I recently graduated from college, moved back home and I've also been spending a lot of time thinking about the way that I was parented um, just because I've been around my parents so much more than I was in college. And one thing that I've noticed is that they did a really good job of instilling self-esteem, which is why I brought that word up. Because I really relate to everything you said, like the two pillars, like unconditional support, even if we think you're making a bad decision. Like one thing my mom always told me was like, I'm going to let you fuck up, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that, um, that really, really matters. I'm curious, was there a catalyst for you starting to think more about this? Like, cause for me, it was like moving home, but for you, was it just having these conversations with other people? You know, really like in complete transparency, it mostly comes from my relationship with my husband because his, um, his relationship with his parents is pretty much different from my relationship with my parents in every single way. Um, he like had to hide everything from them. He did not feel supported. Um, if, you know, he didn't feel that anything he did would be okay. It was like, he had to do the things that they wanted him to do. And, um, if he wasn't doing the things he wanted, if he wasn't doing the things that they wanted him to do, he had to lie about it. And so just noticing him, noticing him struggle with that and then, have this kind of built up resistance to authority because of that, like not wanting, having a, having a trigger response from like being told what to do. And I'm like, Oh, I don't have that because I was never like told what to do in this way that felt, um, that felt confining and constricting to my character. Um, so that's what brings it up for me in, in adulthood. Talk about, um, trigger responses because, that's an it's an interesting word like the way I interpret that is like some event or something that happened as you grew up has kind of given you a sore spot and when that's like touched by someone in conversation you kind of like become a different person is that the kind of way that you think about it mm, yeah everything that you said resonated with me um, maybe except like becoming a, a different person I think that that the touch on that sore spot um, or actually want to share, uh, like a yoga word, um, samskara is is the word that I use for that soreness. Um, so samskara is like, it's like scar tissue. It's like built up something um, inside, like you're saying, that sore spot. Um, and so when we have 
areas that have this samskara um and and someone touches it like you said it i think causes us sometimes to jump back into that into that reaction um that we had originally as a child um there there's a lot there's a lot uh of like trauma education actually that I've been digging into by way of a not-for-profit called Art of Yoga Project that I teach for um that brings yoga to at-risk youth and um incarcerated youth and um in in this trauma training it's like these are the things that we talk about um are how are it's actually very um it's very scientific it's very like brain science it's not just uh like an intangible energetic woo woo type of thing but actually your your brain um is very much involved with these trigger responses and it's about like survival and um and so i think when you're triggered you revert without necessarily thinking or or choosing to have this response you revert into this um survival behavior that has been learned and practiced over time um right like long long time ago our ancestors had the same response when they saw an animal in the woods but now we have that response for like social and emotional traumas yeah yeah and that's that's how i would define that's how i would define a trigger and i found i guess over the last over the last year or so um i found the ability to notice that more um and have tried to practice uh cultivating that ability to cuz i think that's that's the first thing is like acknowledging and being able to notice that it's happening how do you um how do you go about noticing those things um Huh. How to go about it. Because one of the things I talk about a lot is just like self-awareness and trying to like understand like what your triggers are and how they make you react to things. And um, I'm, I'm curious, like as you've kind of dug into to this more yourself, like how does someone, how does a person listen to this, like go about trying to uncover those for themselves? Yeah. So I think that the practice of, of mindfulness to me is about creating space. So mindfulness to me means that when something happens, when there is a sensation, when um I receive a comment or an action that's from the outside, like it's it's not my action but it's something that I'm receiving. When I can bring space between the reception of that stimulus and my own response to it that is mindfulness and so cultivating mindfulness however you might do that for me that's through breath work and meditation and practicing yoga um and practicing conscious communication all of those things for me help me cultivate mindfulness which as you said is a facet of self-awareness. So when you start to have this greater space between say a trigger and your reaction to it, then you can get more curious about that reaction and you can start making decisions about how you want to respond as opposed to um falling into that habitual groove or that habitual pattern that just has you immediately reacting in a certain way. Is this making sense? <laughs> this is making a lot of sense. I talk about a lot of this stuff. One thing that's what that I was going to bring up is that this is like work. Like self-awareness and trying to like uncover your triggers and trying to change your emotional response to them is like really it's work work. Um yeah, it's not just going to happen. A hundred percent. And that's where I want, I want to go. You talked about breath work and that kind of caught my attention because like literally within the past week, um, I've noticed that a lot of the chronic pain injuries that I've had, you know, I was a soccer player, I was a dancer. Um, a lot of the chronic pain injuries I've had, I've, I realized that they're linked to distressed breathing and like just breathing shallowly and not, not breathing in deeply enough, not breathing out long enough. And literally within the past week, I've started, you know, working out and dancing while 
like maintaining a like consistent long breath. And I, and I feel completely different. So I'd love for you to talk about like breath work and your expertise and knowledge around it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yes. I definitely want to talk about breath. Um, so I got into breath work by way of both yoga and, um, my voice and speech training through, uh, my, my college life. So I did my BFA in acting at the university of Miami and it was amazing and super fun. And, um, and we took a voice and speech class every year of that, of that four-year program. Um, and so we did a ton of breath work because using your voice is all about supporting your voice using your breath. Um, and so I got started in that way. And then also by way of practicing yoga, um, and in yoga, you're sinking movements or in yoga asana. Okay. In, in, America, most of the time when someone says yoga, they mean yoga asana, which is the physical practice of yoga, which is really only just a single facet of all that is yoga, just as a, as a side, as a side. How many other facets would you say there are? Um, what is it? The limbs of yoga. I'm going to look them up and tell you. The limbs of yoga. There are eight limbs of yoga. And so one of them is asana. And then one of them is pranayama, which is the breath the breath piece. Um, and so when you're practicing yoga, uh, yoga asana, you are aligning your breath with your movement, um, in, in some styles, in the way that I practice in the way that feels, um, most effective for me is, uh, when I'm synchronizing my breath with my movement. Um, and that that's how I that's how I teach my yoga classes. Can you help me like focus in on on um Yeah, yeah. The reason I wanted to bring it up was because I, I, I want you to talk about like something that someone who's listening to this could do, like while they're driving their car or like right before they go to bed or the next time they're in class to like really make this concept real yeah, in their for lives. sure. Um I think any practice of just breathing in a conscious way. So as opposed to, so breathing is going to, is going to, breathing it hopefully is happening, right? You're just breathing. Um, so it's, it's this really cool thing that our bodies can do where it can happen just on its own, but it can also happen um, in, in a specific way that you're, um, that you're doing intentionally. So that's pretty cool. Like my heart's always beating, but I mean, I can go for a run and that's going to get my heart rate up, but I can't just simply think about it and change the way my heart's beating, the way that you can like simply make a choice and change the way you're breathing. So it's cool to acknowledge that it's just like a very, a very special thing that we have. It's like a very special thing that we can do where it's just going to happen, but also we can make these intentional choices about it. So anytime that you're breathing consciously, that that's a breath practice. Anytime you shift your awareness to your breath and say, okay, and now I'm taking an inhale and I'm taking an exhale. And I think really even as simple as that and as like cliche as it could be, it's really not. I think anybody who just does that says, okay, focus my attention onto my breath and nothing else, even for just a single inhale and an exhale, I think would feel a result from that. So yeah, any, any integration of that. So maybe like starting your day as you get out of bed before you do anything, taking five breaths that way, like I'm inhaling and I'm exhaling five times, I think would feel the impact of breath work. And that's actually something I want to share as like a big piece of what I'm looking to like offer in, in everything right now, in uh, my social media, in my classes. I want to offer that these practices don't have to be a big deal. Like these, these ways, like you said, of like doing this work, it doesn't have to be like a $26 drop-in class at a yoga studio that takes 90 minutes and you had to pay to park and like all this other stuff. Um, and I think that right now there is, uh, it's like a, the threshold is really 
overwhelming perhaps of being like, oh my God, well, I can't practice yoga or I can't practice mindful breathing because I, I am not flexible enough or because I don't have the right clothes to wear and I can't afford them or because I, I don't have a class that's close by or convenient to my schedule or because I can't commit the 75 minutes for the class. I think right now, like the idea of what the threshold is, is like so much crazier than it actually has to be where it's like, I bet if anyone, including myself, if anyone committed to waking up in the morning and taking 10 deep conscious breaths before going and doing anything, before getting out of the bed. Looking at the phone. Yeah. Before picking up your phone, before doing any of it. Um, which I mean, it actually wouldn't have to be before. Like, that's just, that's like what I'm like, thinking of as an idea, like an ideal, but you could look at what, yeah, I think even if you got, if you got out of bed, you looked at your phone, you um, started making coffee and then you sit on the sofa. My favorite moment in the morning, really my favorite moment in the morning is I always get up and I heat up water and I drink, um, I drink water with a teaspoon of sea salt, which is an Ayurvedic thing. Keeps you hydrated. Yeah. It's an Ayurvedic thing called sole. And, um, and it's a morning practice that I do. And so I heat up my, mor- uh, my water and I, then I sit when my water is hot and I have the salt and I mix it up, I sit on the sofa and I just drink it and I don't do anything else, but I just drink that water and I'm like, okay, I'm here. And is that one of your favorite times of the day? That is, yeah, that's a, a time of the day that I really, really like. Um, and, and so I think it doesn't like, it's okay. Okay. Yeah. You look at your phone first, whatever. If at some point in your morning routine, you were to stop and sit still and breathe 10 conscious breaths, I really think that, that everyone would feel that everyone would feel some kind of result. It doesn't have to be like a fancy practice. It doesn't have to be like a yoga class at a fancy studio. Right. And I like that you keep bringing up this word result. For me, a lot of the times the result for breath work is just the opportunity to like shut off my internal monologue for like as long as I'm actually focusing on the breath. Because what I've noticed is that when I like deliberately breathe in and out like to a certain number, it's really hard to like focus on like what I have to do tomorrow or this thing that happened that I'm sad about or like a conversation that I had or just whatever is going on in my head. It's like an opera. It's like respite from the internal monologue for just that time. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's the gift of all of this. I mean, that is the gift of, that is the gift of, of practicing yoga. That is the gift. I mean, for, for me and for many of my um, students, I think of dancing, even I teach these 13 year old girls that are brilliant. They're so cool. Um, and I teach them and I ask them about like why they enjoy it. Like, like, what are, what do you feel is the, is the benefit or like, why do you love this? Because they do, they love it. And they are so like stoked to be there. And all of them say that all of them are like, it's like when I'm dancing, I'm like focusing so much on what I'm doing with my body that my mind is just there. And it's so cool to hear these like kids describing the flow state and like describing meditation basically. And it's so neat to hear them describe it in their own words and like their own understanding of it. Um, so yes, that is definitely one of the benefits or like you said, one of the, one of the results and it's, but it, but it like, it keeps going though. It's like, not even for me, it's like, not even just that one moment. It's like, then once I've it's like you, it's like practicing anything you get, it's a habit. You get better and better at it. Yeah. You get better and better at it. And that's why I'm addicted to teaching. I mean, like teaching is, is meditation for me. It's like completely focused on the present moment. I cannot be thinking about anything else. Like I am just, I have to be right there or I, or I get lost or I'm, you know, I'm like messing up or like not offering what I wanted to offer. Um, so that's like part of why I love teaching so much is that it's just, it's like meditation all the time. Um, and when you practice it, it becomes more and more accessible uh, to, to have that time where your mind is truly focused and not jumping around or bouncing around. 
you know, I, I want to talk about this idea of like presence in the classroom because, you know, for everyone listening, and I'll go into this more in the intro, but, you know, we're, the reason we're talking is because I've taken your class at Euphoria. And one thing that I really like about your class is you have a, you have a unique presence. Like everyone is on, everyone is listening to what you have to say. Like there's a lot of confidence in the way that you just project yourself, especially to, to new clients the first time that they ever go to class. I'm curious, like talk about how being that present and having to be aware of everyone else's emotions, like helps you just kind of be in that flow. Mm, yeah. So I, th- I think that a big piece of why we show up to take class is this desire to be seen. And I really need, like, I wouldn't even, I don't even want to say want. It's not that I want, I like need to give that. Like I need for people to feel seen in my classes. Um, Because to me, it's just like, it's just like not about the workout. And it's not about even like the dance and the choreography, even though I, I love those pieces. It's about um, it's about being fully present with these people and like being in community um, and and being together and making people feel seen and feel heard. And then I think then in return for that, I have high expectations. I expect you to be there. And I think people in my in my dance classes specifically um, is kind of what I'm thinking of here. But in my dance classes, I think people respond well to that expectation. I'm expecting them to be present. I want them to be responsive. Yes, because it's fun, but also because that means they're there. I think that I'm kind of like holding them accountable to not check out. And that's like what that's like what we want to be doing, right? Like we we want to be letting this be meditation. We want to practice the flow state, I think. Um, in a best case scenario, we want to be practicing that. And I, I really want to be present with, with people so that they want to be present with me. Thank you for that. I want to, I want to make sure that we talk about acting, um, before we go into a different place, because you've hinted at it. You talked about acting early. You talked about, you know, you, you support actors in an after school thing. You got your, your BFA from Miami. So did you ever try to be an actor? Is that an ambition of yours? Like talk more about acting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my background in acting has been by way of like community theater as a kid. I went to a fine arts high school, really cool high school um, in my hometown, Augusta, Georgia, called Davidson Fine Arts. And um, so we had a like stellar theater program there. And then I studied acting in college. And um, just being an actor professionally is really hard. Um, and what I found just like from my friends that had already graduated and you know, from different sources, I kind of knew that like in order to pursue acting as a profession, I was going to have to um, find a job that would, uh, I was going to have to find a job that would allow me to like bail when I got an acting job that I wanted. And I was like, uh, well, if I do something I really care about, I'm not going to want to bail. And if I feel okay bailing on it, that means I, it's not something that I really care about. And I I figured that I didn't want to do something on a daily basis for my job that I didn't care about so that maybe one day, hopefully I would get a chance to do what I really loved. Um, And also I think the, the types of theater projects that I would feel super excited about working on, I I don't think would be like really high paying projects. Um, So I went to, uh, I went to Kripalu School of Yoga, like right after I graduated school and I did my yoga teacher training there. And I just like loved the community and it felt very supportive and it wasn't competitive um, in the way that theater can sometimes be. And I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. So no, I never, I never really did like pursue, uh, sorry, pursue acting after I graduated in a professional way. I've done a couple of projects here and there that just kind of come through. Um, But I found more so that I think all of that acting training and all of that background has led me into what um, I was always meant to do, which is, which is teaching dance and and offering these like experiences that I offer. 
um, because all of the acting training is very relevant. So um, like the voice and speech work, teaching, especially teaching fitness is like so much voice work and breath work. Um, and then the dancing and the musicality from like musical theater all plays a very, very strong role in, in what I'm doing now. Um, the acting piece specifically, I, I do miss um, because I don't get as much of that. But in a lot of ways, teaching is also like acting, like you are creating a character and it, it's it's a version of you. It's authentic, but um, we all have. But it's a specific persona. Yeah, it's a specific version of you. And it's um, and it's fun because you get to craft that and you get to curate that um, entirely yourself. And so, yeah, it, it is like acting. Like I might think about like, what would Davy say? What would Davy say? Like Davy as, um, not as character because it is a version of me. So like character isn't really the word that I want to use, but as my Davy character, like in a dance class setting, what would she say? And that's, that's specific. And as, um, as a professional in this field, you get to like write that script yourself. And so it is acting, but there's also some, there's like a writing kind of uh, element to it as well. Sort of like figuring out who is this character and who is this person and, and what would she say? Um, tell me, uh, what have you gotten like better at over the years as a teacher, dance, yoga, fitness, whatever it may be? Mm trusting um so trusting that what i'm doing is going to resonate with the right people um it can be very tempting to like want to want to please everyone and that's um that's it's not feasible and I think there is benefit to like, there's benefit to receiving feedback and there's benefit to like noticing what is well received. Um, but it can't really come from a place of wanting to please people. So this trust that like, okay, I'm going to do what I do. And, um, if you like it, cool. And if you don't like it, that's also cool. Um, I think that tra having trust of that over time um, has I've definitely learned and that has supported me in in my journey. Um, other things that I feel like I've learned and I've gotten. I want to touch on that for a second. Um, you know, something that I talk a lot about on the podcast is just like other people's opinions and um, the way that we interact around other people in a way that kind of tries to please anyone and not get anyone to not like us. Mm -hmm. You use this word trust. Like for you, how did you build that ability to actually have the mindset of like, I'm okay if you're not about this? Like you use the word trust. Is it trust between you and just like people, like just anyone? Mm. If that's question's not clear, let me know. I just kind of wanted you to talk yeah, more about that. Yeah, I think it's more like trust of my path like trust of, um, I don't, it, trust of, trust of myself. Um, and then oh, I know trust of my worth, um, trust of, of my value, um, that I'm not, I'm not letting my value or my sense of self-worth be defined by somebody else's opinion. And that, I mean, that comes from your parents. I feel like I have the same thing. That comes from my parents. This is going to be kind of like a, this is a bigger question, but I just love to hear what you have to say about this. Like someone who came from a background where their parents didn't instill self-esteem in them, it's very hard for them to actually think that they, that they are worthy, that they can trust their worth. What have you seen like for yourself, for your friends, family members, like what helps? How do you develop that worth and that self-esteem? Mm. I think doing things that make you feel like the best version of yourself um, helps cultivate helps cultivate that feeling. Um, so noticing noticing um, just maybe to use yoga again as an example, 
noticing that, wow, I feel amazing and, and I feel focused and I feel vibrant after I take a yoga class. And then manifesting that as your reality. Take a yoga class. Um, or like whatever that is. It's maybe it's not yoga, maybe it's not movement at all. Maybe it's um maybe it's baking, maybe it's um, I don't know, scrapbooking. <laughs> I don't know. What makes that thing you like. Yeah, that thing that makes you feel like like you, like the best version of you. Um, I think that doing that and 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 having that feeling like I love myself. I think that doing those things that make you feel that way, I think, um, cultivates that sense, that sense of self-worth. I, uh, that word, I love, I love myself. It's so, it's so overused in, in songs, but it really, it's, it really, really rings true. Um, I'd I'd love for you to like, say, say more about that. Cause I think it does come back to like self-esteem, like just, just loving yourself. Say more about like that kind of statement. I love myself. Yeah, like talk because I, I, I like for, for, for me, that makes a lot of sense. But I also think, you know, I think about this stuff a lot. Like I, I think where I'm coming from is like I went to a school that there was a lot of, you know, people who struggled with anxiety and depression and the, and the kind of statement like I love myself. It's it's I, the, the reaction is like, but I but I don't. Yeah. And and you talked about you talked about doing things that make you feel great. Like, I guess I'd love for you to talk more about that. Yeah, I I think I think what I mean is is like being being curious and finding even okay, so maybe if it's like you're saying like I love myself, but that's not true for me. I I really don't, you know. Then it's it's even just finding what is the glimpse? What is the tiniest piece of I love myself that you experience? So, um I don't know. I I I like something about what who I was in that moment. It doesn't have to be a full on, you know, power, power I love myself. You know, like, okay, that's a lot to ask. But any any time that you feel that spark of like, this is me, this is my full self, anytime you can identify any glimmer of that, use that as guidance. That then is is telling you, okay, well, if I can just do a little more of that, maybe that glimmer turns into like a bigger spark where I feel, you know, not just that I'm okay with myself, but even I, I kind of like myself. Maybe it's not, I love myself. Again, this kind of comes back to the idea of that threshold where it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It doesn't have to be like a head to toe Lululemon on the yoga mat in the studio or nothing at all. It can be a practice of like, oh, that made me feel okay. So now I'm going to do it again because it made me feel okay, which was better than how I was feeling before. Right. Finding those small slices and then trying to just expand our time doing those things, those small slices. Yeah. To continue practice. It's like practicing it. Okay. So I want to I wanna close out with three kind of rapid fire questions that I ask um, to everyone that I interview. Um, and the answers don't have to be, the answers don't have to be rapid fire. Um, they can be as long as you want. Um, but the first one is about sleep. Okay. What do, what, like, what do you do in order to sleep your best? Like what things are you doing when you're sleeping really well? Hmm. Uh, so it kind of is like what we were just talking about. So I feel like my best version of myself, you know, in certain in certain circumstances. But one of the things that makes me feel like the best version of myself is intentionally getting ready for bed. Um, so like making a choice, okay, and now I'm going to like, wash my face, brush my teeth, take my herbs, like now is bedtime that's one of the things that makes me feel like the best version of myself. And when I do that, I, I absolutely sleep better. I feel better. Um, yeah, I feel better for sure. Other things, other things that help me, uh, Oh, this is a fun one. Eye mask. I swear by an eye mask. Um, I love eye. Does it get itchy on your face? No. So I have one that has like little cups. I've tried, let me tell you, me and my husband have tried all the eye masks. 
experimented with all the eye masks because we're like nerdy about it like that. Um, so the best one that I found is like, it's like a little cup over your eyes. Um, the way we got into this is that in, in yoga classes, sometimes there will be, um, eye pillows and they like have like lavender in them or like whatever rice and you put them on your eyes and it feels so good. And we're like, okay, well, we want to have that all the time, not just when we're at this yoga studio. So we had those kinds and, um, the pressure on your eyes over, overnight, uh, it didn't feel like necessarily positive or like necessarily beneficial. And then also they would always slide off cause they didn't have like a strap in the back. It was just like, uh, a little pillow. And so that ones that have a strap on the back and we found these ones that have like little cups over your eyes. So, um, it's not actually like touching. Oh, this is also cause I used to have eyelash extensions <laughs> and I didn't want them to get smushed. Um, yeah, so eye masks, definitely square by that. And then doing a bedtime routine. Um, I'll also often, like when I when I actually give myself time to truly wind down, I'll like do some like really chill stretching. I know a lot of people talk about like not using screens before before bed, and that's maybe like an aspiration for me, but I don't find that. <laughs> I haven't necessarily found that like watching an episode of the office before bed, like that doesn't really like negatively impact me. I think if I was watching like heavy TV, um, like if I was watching like breaking bad or something like that, right. Something that gets your emotions going. Yeah. That will negatively impact me. But I, I like watching an episode of the office as a moment to like, like be awake, but laugh and, and, you know, enjoy myself. Power for a down. Moment. Yeah. yeah. Power down. I don't, that doesn't feel like a negative thing for me. Although I know a lot of people talk about the light and things like that from, um, from devices, but that's not one that I like totally practice. Maybe I would feel way better if I did, but <laughs> Well, I got to say the routine, the routine is really important. Kind of having something that kind of signals to your brain, like, okay, let's start getting ready to go to sleep. That definitely helps. Um, the next, the next question I have is, do you have any questions for me? I want to give you like the opportunity. If you're curious about anything, if there's anything you want to know, like, do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I would love to hear just like your blurb, um, answer for how you got into dance or like what your dance background has been? Um, Because I needed something. I played soccer for 13 years and I was just very burned out of it by the time I got to college and I knew I didn't want to continue, but I needed something. So I tried a lot of things. I tried sketch comedy, believe it or not, which I was really, really bad at. And I did for like six (laughs) weeks. And then, and then I tried basketball. Like I, I had played basketball in high school. And so I was like, okay, let me play intramural. And then I did, like, I was in class, this guy, we, me and him were talking about what we were going to do that weekend. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to Brooklyn for this dance class. And literally I just had the idea like, fuck, what, what would it be like if I went to a dance class? And yeah. so I went to, I, I hit up my cousin who lives in the Bronx and I'm like, where should I go in New York for dance? And she's like, oh Broadway God. dance center. Yeah. And I went there and I took class with a guy named Keenan Cooks. I stood in the front row because oh. I didn't actually, I didn't understand the nuances of like standing in the front row in a dance class. Cause I thought I did, I had never done choreography at, at this point. So I didn't know what was going to happen. Oh my God. <laughs> That's anyway, the punchline, the punchline of that class is that I loved the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I felt like dance class was like, it was incredibly serious. It reminded me of like playing competitive soccer, playing competitive basketball, but it wasn't those things like it gave me that same feeling without it being soccer or basketball and i just love that with dance you can age and still take it seriously yeah. right like if you're 27 if you're 27 and you're not playing in the english premier league you can't really like play soccer seriously but you can always go to class and take that seriously yeah. so that's why I felt okay that's yes thank you for, for sharing that that's super cool and i think yeah that atmosphere in a dance class i think think uh is very compelling and like very addictive and I think that that that's maybe what I meant when I was saying that I have expectations for my for my classes it's like I think that people want that like like that feeling of, of like taking it seriously and discipline it doesn't have to be serious like angry 
without the judgment. Yeah, yeah, without without the judgment. And that's like specifically what I, I want to share in my classes is like like having a high bar, but I'm not going to but there's not like judgment in the way that there are in some dance classes. There's not judgment around like if you're not performing it to a certain at a certain level or if you're not, you know, doing the movements with a certain level of of technique or sharpness. There's no judgment, like there's only love, <laughs> but it's that same, but there still can be intensity, I think, even if there's not, or that, that um, element that you were describing, I think that can be Right. And I think, without, oh, keep going. Oh, it can be there without, without the, without the judgment, without the, the dark side of it. 100%. And I think it just comes down to like, stop like comparing your, the way that you did the routine to the way someone else did the routine. What's actually another thing that I've started to learn once I've, I've been getting back into dance recently is like it, the routine has to feel good. Like I have to focus on making the routine feel good in my body. Not like, not like, did I hit this angle as good as she hit that angle? You know, that, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's so cool that you're saying that because that resonates with me so deeply, but I didn't know that's what I was feeling. Like I did, I wouldn't have described it that way, but that totally resonates with me. So it's like cool to hear your description of that feeling where like, it's more about getting, figuring out how to make it feel good in your body than it is about like mastering some specific motion. A hundred percent. Cause that's what, that's what trips people, people up in groups is like, you've been doing this for 50 minutes, but now that people are watching, you're like worried about the way it looks and you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So, um, what I want to uh, leave with is I, I promised we would talk about kind of your ambitions for opening up your own. I don't know if you would call it a studio, like a gym, but like, talk to me about the vision for that. Like, what would it be like? What would you offer? Like what kind of clients would you serve, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so my vision for a, a space, um, I think that I would say that it's a, a space for movement. Um, not, I wouldn't necessarily use the word studio because there's just like a lot wrapped up in that word, I think, for, for me and for many. Um, and so uh, my, my idea is to have a space that um, is as much a space for people to come take classes as it is a space for people to come and be and um, be together. Um, and I, I, I just see the relationships between my clients. And that to me is the most beautiful thing um, when, when individuals become a community and become a support system for each other, because then that just continues making the class experience better and better and more and more loving. Um, and so I want to have a space where people can come and spend time together uh, because to me, the, the magic is is in that, not even just in the specific instructor that we have there or whatever. Um, the, the magic is that in between, um, between the people, in between the classes. And in a lot of spaces right now, there's just like hardly any like literal real estate to hang out in. Um so that's that's an important facet of of the of the space for me, and then as far as what we would offer, everything um, I think m- the majority at least of our class offerings would be music music integrated. So uh, in the way that in a yoga class you are inhaling and doing a certain movement and exhaling and doing a different movement, um, all of our classes will be synchronized to the beat in that way. And I do have an idea or a vision of um, classes that actually synchronize all three. So music, breath, and movement. Um, so that's that's kind of like a big picture short answer. Um, is do you have a name in mind? Um, we do, yeah, we do have a name. It would be called the Drop. Ooh, I oh, say more. <laughs> Why the Drop? Well, it's just to me, it's all about the Drop. Like in in, For, in the music, in the music, in the music. Yeah, it's 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 all about the Drop. And like whenever I'm teaching, that's like the fun, that's the playfulness of of teaching. At least in my dance classes, is I'm like listening to the playlist all the time. Um, in the class and figuring out, okay, so this next thing that I want to teach, can I teach it in the next six counts of eight 
so that when I finish teaching it, I can count us in five, six, seven, eight, and we can do it from the top um, on the beat drop. Like that to me is like what's going on in my in my head is me like listening, engaging with the music and deciding like, okay, when am I going to stop running through the choreography so that I um, so that I can teach something new. I can have them run through the new thing, like maybe three or four times. And then when we're ready to run it from the top, that pretty much aligns with when the drop's going to happen in the music. Um, so that's why that's advanced. (laughs) Well, it's not, it's also not like completely conscious. Like I'm, it's like, it's something that I've, I've practiced. And when I know the music really well, and when I've worked with it a lot, um, then I'm just like familiar with, with when that's going to happen. And it, and it makes the, it makes the classic series like really exciting because you can feel that energy. Um, like if I, if I count you in, in the middle of a verse or something, it just doesn't feel as exciting as if I count you in right before the beat drop. And then we get that feeling again and again and again and again through class of like five, six, seven, eight, boom. And the beat drops that to me is like, it's like exciting and fun. Yeah. And that's everything. That's so cool. Well, I, uh, I appreciate you giving us the details. Um, and I kind of want to end it there. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. We tried many times to do this and I really appreciate you continuing to find time to do this. Cause I, I, I really wanted to have this conversation, you know, ever since I started taking class when I was in college two and a half years ago, I've always been like, she's like, cool. I want to like talk to her and find out more about her. So I appreciate this. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm like beaming over here. Um, this is like my first time doing uh, something like this. So, uh, yeah, you should do more of this stuff. You're good. at this. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so yeah, this is really fun to feel like a little bit nervous and, and also just excited to share. And, uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. A hundred percent. Well, I will let you get on with the rest of your day. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Bye.